0: What you're about to hear is part two of a two-part conversation with Ed Cook, Grandmaster of Memory, and much more than that. He is a hilarious dude. You will love him. Uh, If you didn't catch the first part, however, you might want to do that before venturing in. But this is really a conversation that jumps around, and we answer a lot of different questions and different topics. So if you don't mind your stories as more of a jigsaw puzzle, then by all means, keep on listening. So without further ado, please enjoy part two of the Tim Ferriss Show with Ed Cook. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health,
1: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found.
0: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started
1: at linkedin.com acquire. That's linkedin.com acquire. Terms and conditions apply.
0: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same time. What if I did the island? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton.
1: That was an example of where intuition was thwarted by a kind of banal kind of self-recriminating rationality resulting in, um, I'm almost certain like a less interesting product and uh, less fun.
0: (laughs) Now uh, you bring up a really interesting, uh, you bring up a really interesting set of questions. And this is, this is something that, uh, at, at times I do better with at times I do more poorly with, but I've tried to, at various points in my life, uh, Make, increase the speed with which I make decisions. So if a, if a decision is reversible and, uh, (laughs) non-fatal, then, uh, I find my life is generally much better when I just do exactly what you mentioned, which is like left, right, who gives a fuck? I'm going right. It'll be fine. And if it's not, I'll figure it out later. And making these types of reversible decisions as quickly as possible so that you don't have a lot of cognitive burden and you're not sort of stuck up your own ass all the time, um, but in the case of the bus yeah, yeah, yeah. and the business, let's just say, or uh, h- how do you balance the in- the intuition, which at some at, at, at times can be an irrational exuberance, with yeah, the yeah. sort of pre- prefrontal <laughs> cortex calculation?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's that's a question that, that that is that is the question, and it's not a question that I have an answer to. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but but I assume it's something to do. God damn it, Ed! Like,
0: why did I do this interview? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pathetic, isn't it? Uh, I, by the way, uh, before I I, I I suppose we're quite far into this interview, there are two things, by the way, we must come back to. One of which is um, how you think about merit, because I th- yeah, well, how you think about merit, and the other one of which is Burning Man, because I went to that this year, and it is the most perfect example of any institution I've ever seen. And it's also a sublime exemplar of memory techniques. Put into the outside world. <laughs> so anyway, so those are, those are two two little sort of um, thoughts, which we must come back to. Um, sure. But where were we? We were uh, yeah. And so talking So I've got yeah. no idea about the intuition thing, but like, um, but I think, um, and I'm basically learning from um, from my girlfriend, who um, is a more spiritual connected. Um, uh, intuitive person than I am by kind of disposition and native structure, so to speak, um, who can come to a discussion, you know, and this might get back to our kind of point about relationships, fundamentally with like calm,
0: like with where normally your mind is like, Oh, I, that's,
1: you know, so that's
0: normally your mind. That's actually the best description of my mind I've ever heard right there. <laughs> yeah and, it, and it's kind of rubbish
1: isn't it because you kind of you're, you know you know like well one wants to be kind of like a didgeridoo like wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you know, whatever. wow 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 but but you know unfortunately you're just like oh fuck oh maybe i'm a lizard. oh no i should really like you know um but by the way uh so so one, one thing i quite enjoy about our friendship tim is that um that you're quite good at like coming up to rational conclusions and implementing them, and I'm not. <laughs> so uh, early this week, I was like, Jesus Christ, I smoke the whole time, I drink lots of wine, I just sort my act out. I'm going to start doing yoga. And even yoga is even something which I find fascinating and interesting, you know, rich. I think it's like a, a fundamentally profound system of thought, which, you know, connects autonomous rhythms with the body's capacity of movement and the mind, you know, I, I, I don't have enough good things to say about yoga, but I never fucking do it. And so I was like, okay, Jesus, um, I was like, Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to go do some, I'm going to, you know, I, I need to be healthy. I said, like, I'm going to go do some yoga. And so I went down to the yoga thing and then I paid. they had this big, great deal, 25 pounds for 10 days of consecutive sessions. And I was like, Genius this time i 'm going to do ten days of consecutive sessions. then went to the first one because I was there and um, and did it and it was great and you know felt fantastic, super pepped up, and the rest of it and that was, that was five days ago <laughs> 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 i haven't mean, just i 'm just inept i, I, I don 't know what what kind of consistency or perspective is required to actually implement uh, worthy plans like that and, and actually that 's why i um, why I, I, I quite enjoy chatting and just generally brainstorming with you because you seem to have a capacity to sort of come up to a conclusion like that. It's like, oh, yeah, yoga, really good. I should do some more yoga and then actually do it. A, a capacity which I find mysterious and suspicious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> <Just> you know, <laughs> it, it all comes down to black magic. Uh, you have to get a dead cat, preferably black, swing it counterclockwise over your head right. before yeah, the yeah, yeah. No, it's Honestly, it's, it's uh, I find it uh, r- endlessly amusing how... Uh, in, particularly in some media pieces, I'm played up to be this sort of stalwart of self-discipline and systems thinking. And uh, I, I function like bishop from aliens. You know, I just have this incredible <laughs> ability to execute, execute, execute. And at the end of the day, I am just good at setting up incentives for myself that punish me and flog me if I don't do things. So the way that I would conquer the yoga, has nothing to do with convincing yourself or rationalizing. I would take extremely unflattering photos of yourself in tidy whities front and center. Give those to a friend who can keep an agreement, but who will also show no mercy and just say, if I don't, if I don't prove to you as my judge that I've gone (laughs) to yoga for 10 days straight, like these are going to go, you know, on the homepage as a pop up. For the, for, the, for the, or the, or something like that, or on Facebook. Yeah, you know what this connects to? This is a bit like
1: Goethe and his friends in the room. It's like externalizing beyond yourself the sources of the things you need for yourself. Yeah, a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean that would yeah, be a, a pompous I,
1: I, way of saying, obviously, but. <laughs> uh.
0: No, but I think I think, um, think self discipline is so overrated. If you if you break it yeah, down, yeah. you know, self discipline is actually it's kind of a poor label. Uh, it's poorly defined, at least. It's overused mm-hmm. to the to the extent that it's really lost any type of clarity in its meaning. Yeah. So yeah. for me, self discipline is like no, we we we're like rats in a lab. Put us in a Skinner box, which is life, and we respond to inputs. Uh, that are punishment and reward and we adjust our behavior accordingly. So it's like, all right, great. Well, make that external. You're not going to punish or reward yourself typically. It's usually not enough and it's, it's right. too easily reneged. Uh, so you can, uh-huh. you can externalize it. Uh, you can also put uh-huh. some money on the line. That's also very useful for people, but, um, <laughs> but how the hell did we get this far? So the, yeah. the, the, uh, we're going to talk about Burning Man. We're going to come back to, Your discussion with your girlfriend, which we left long ago, Mm -hmm. but we'll come back to that. The, the, then merit. So merit, is merit, I'm still struggling with this and I'm, I'm a bit of a semantic pain in the ass. Is merit close to the, the, in your mind, sort of the Roman, uh, arete, like this virtue, or is it just, uh, is, can it be boiled down to sort of deservedly winning? Is that, uh is that what well, so
1: yes, so I think virtue um of which I have none <laughs> um, but virtue is is like i think a, is the correct is how we should think about merit, so um you know in some in some sense like um the humanities in inverted commas, have had this nailed for like two thousand years what like the fundamental tendencies of a good human being are. You know empathy um temperance uh generosity uh kind of non egotism you know I, we sort of know what good human beings are we have done for thousands of years um but that's not what we celebrate or immediately associate with merit, right so we tend to associate merit with like um tangible outcomes in life path mm-hmm. um, which might include like getting a Harvard law degree. Or you know, being Bill Gates or whatever um, and um, and so and so the kind of the concept of improving oneself is obviously an excellent concept, regardless of how um, how socially you perceive human action and existence, because to improve yourself is to to improve the world. It's to improve your interactions with others. It's, it's, it's not a kind of lonely activity, but, um, at the same time, um, you know, if you look at like, you know, Silicon Valley startups, um, which are in some sense, the great drivers of human culture at the moment <laughs> besides like ISIS <laughs> and whatever. Right. But like, uh, anyway, but you know, the the natural tendency in that way of thinking is to become personally more efficient. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's to like store files more effectively, um, get things done better. Do you know, be quicker, optimize oneself. And, um, and this is a kind of merit thing in its way, but it's, it's quite a selfish one. Um, and, um, goodness knows, you know, for lots of subtle reasons, um, we're all selfish, but, um, you can imagine alter- an alternative culture of, of creativity and power of the kind that the Silicon Valley has, which would all be focused on, um, making communities better and institutions better and, um, hacking, um, not oneself, but, um, but the situations which comprise the world and, uh, you know, I'll give you my, my kind of go-to example about this. Is you go to San Francisco, unbelievable cool town, full of just the most magical people. So like intellectually vibrant and open and fun and awesome and beautiful. Um, but and, and so rich. And there's fucking like homeless people everywhere. And you're like, seriously guys, that, that's Twitter HQ there. It's a $15 billion company or whatever. Everyone inside is being paid more than $100,000 a year. And this happens on their doorstep? Do they have no, like, conception? They no, like, basic grasp over what, like, happy existence is? Because your existence would be happier if you didn't have to, at a purely selfish level, walk past all these people who were clearly in a state of distress and maybe hassling you and whatever. Um, and uh, anyway, so I think that's, like, uh, that's one of the most interesting things about San Francisco. And it's kind of, to me, emblematic of a tendency of thought Which looks to optimize the individual over the situations, qua your like external stuff influencing the self, rather than the self influencing self, rather than external situations, which are the things which actually make us happy, like the ability to play chess on the street and you know giving people things and whatever other. Yeah,
0: no, I I agree. I think that just to not take us down too much of a political rat hole, but I think that the part of what makes San Francisco very fascinating in the Bay area in general is uh, there are many divergent opinions on many different subjects. And some people think Bitcoin is a fraud. Other people think it's the future and there's everything in between for every conceivable subject. Some people believe in long-term monogamous relationships and then you have the whole polyamorous community and there's everything in between. Uh, and the, Simultaneously, for instance, I think that San Francisco could learn a lot as it relates to homeless people and other aspects of uh, rejuvenating a city from New York City. I think Giuliani and Bloomberg did have done a just a phenomenal job with converting yeah. Manhattan into a pleasant place to walk, and that mm-hmm. was not—it wasn't in the not, in the distant past that it was terrifying to walk in areas that are mm-hmm. now very popular. The, the challenge, I think, is that in San Francisco, among many, there are many reasons for this, but one of the challenges is, uh, I'm sure, you, or maybe you've heard the expression, you know, a liberal is someone who doesn't know to take his own side in a fight, <laughs> that in San Francisco, there's such a divergence of opinions, no one can agree on fucking anything. And uh that makes it very challenging to deal with systemic issues that involve a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with you. Uh, the the, uh, so t- yeah, but I wonder if that's really right,
1: Tim, because, like, you know, um, there was lots of consensus in San Francisco in certain regions of life, right? So, um, you know, the, the whole kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem is so fluid and dynamic because everyone agrees how it should work. You know, you've got the venture capitalists, the entrepreneurs, the talented young guys, the uh, uh the angel investors the, and, and there's like a very kind of clear shared set of concepts about and, and also a lot of generosity and consensus everyone's always helping everyone um you know there's there's, there's no overt selfishness at all really you know it's like that's that that would what, what I describe as like almost a perfect harmonious community where people are like doing amazing things trying as hard as they can but you know, I, I, for instance, like Memorize, one of, one of the rival sites to Memorize in some sense is this site called Quizlet. And, uh, I'm incredibly good mates with the CEO of Quizlet, this guy called Andrew uh, Southern, who's, a, who's a terrific, uh, character. And, and it's so striking on meeting him. You know, we, we see each other. We have a wonderful time together and we brainstorm together and, uh, he helps me wherever he can. And there's a kind of a sense of shared, Journey um, which defies any notion of normal competition um, and that 's the kind of thing which is going on in the entrepreneurial community and yet there are these quite you know radical divisions between that and you know for instance that i, I don 't understand the history of the homeless people but it is striking that there are you know so many of them and that these two worlds coexist spatially but have zero um, zero social or emotional or conceptual connection in a way.
0: No, I I agree. I think that, that there are, I think that it's very easy to succumb to the belief that SF is tech or that the Bay area is tech when in fact the, that perception is because of the, the prominence in the media and otherwise of outliers and That the, the sort of sexiness and romance of building multi-billion dollar companies in short periods of time, uh, has created Uh, a, a misperception, I think, of how much of the population, um, benefits from being employed at tech companies. The, um, but the, I think it brings up kind of an interesting, uh, question. Maybe we won't get into it right now. I want to talk about Burning Man a bit, but that, (laughs) that, that, um, there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley and in New York City and all over the world who struggle with the question of should I give back now? Should I try to create positive karma in the world and benefit others now? Or mm-hmm. should I be completely selfish now so that I can be completely uh-huh. selfless later? So for instance, yeah there, yeah, yeah. there are people I know, and this is gonna sound crazy, who say who would argue that, you know, Mother Teresa is a media hound and she should not be looked at as a saint and that mm-hmm. you, it would be better to look at someone like Bill Gates, who is, uh, you know, not exactly the, uh, uh, the, the nicest kid on the block when it came to competition and ruthless capitalism for a long period of time, but who now with the stroke of a pen can wipe out, ostensibly, you know, wipe out malaria or polio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it, we're, we're, we live in a culture where yeah. the, the former has been romanticized um, because it's easier. Yeah. perhaps it comes back to like general mental functioning. It's easier to, for us to take this archetypal image of a saint in our mind as opposed yeah. to the, the more complex narrative of somebody who likes a jobs, for instance, who's kind of a son of a bitch. If we really look at it objectively, uh-huh. who's now being deified and, mm-hmm. um, uh, how do you? Yeah,
1: it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, like, sorry to interrupt your question, but, but, but with, with I think Gates is a really, <laughs> if that example. was a
0: question, that was the longest question of all time. <laughs> I think it was just a, <laughs> I was just a rant. So go, yeah, go ahead. Just,
1: uh, uh, um, you know, I see, I assume since it's probably past, um, past 3 p.m. in San Francisco, that you've moved on to the gin and tonics. and that's, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the, um, but I think Gates is a good example because the, because Gates is there if I, you know, it's, considered a heroic figure because of this sort of um, this generosity after the fact of wealth accumulation um, and it i I had quite big arguments with close friends about this because there's one perspective which says a Gates, through personal merit, accrued sixty billion dollars and so deserves to be able to spend it and b he's this like hyper-competent character who's much better than some like inept, internally strife-ridden uh, charitable institution who aren't going to get anything done. This guy's got the competence and the rest of it to go and so solve, solve the world's problems unilaterally and he'll get it done really efficiently. And I can kind of see the merit in that type of kind of perspective. But here's another perspective, which would be so Gates exploited, um, probably pretty illegally, uh, monopolistic, um, practices to accrue from the population of the world immense undeserved wealth at the expense of their computing experience. And now as a unilateral actor is, he now has the, um, the opportunity to spend this on whatever he feels is right. Where in fact, it shouldn't be Bill Gates, decision, what humanity's wealth gets spent on to sort out problems. That should be a democratic, uh, process, you know, um, you know, Gates, um, you know, that, that that old phrase, power corrupts and absolute, power corrupts absolutely, I think is kind of fundamentally psychologically real. That's actually kind of an aside. But, but, you know, I would like to see, as an alternative history of 1980 to 2010, I'd have liked to have seen um, um, Gates become very rich in the course of the 80s and spend $50 million on its local community. And um, a thousand people around the world or everyone around the world have a much better computing experience. And um, a thousand or a million people around the world have the opportunity to divide, divert um, their fraction of the great sum he has at his disposable, disposal um, to the situations in their local communities or in the broader world, which they judge to be meritorious. Um, to 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 merit this sort of spending and um and you know so so and the extreme way of saying that is like like Gates is basically the last person on earth you want spending this kind of resources because um he is um oh actually I think he 's quite a likable character <laughs> I, but 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 because uh because nobody should be spending sixty billion dollars. There should be, like, 60 million people spending Um, $1,000. And that there's something fundamentally wrong with our institutional structure. And, you know, until the objection that it's just not as efficient as when you've got, um, like, uh, a big head honcho just, like, calling the shots, that's probably true. But efficiency on both sides of of the equation, either the charitable side and the wealth accumulation side, seems to be a very ambiguous good, right? Well, being know,
0: more efficient. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I, I don't want to beat the dead horse too, too long, but I, I one of the, yeah. one of the, the ways my thinking has flipped in the last few years is related to judging, uh, prioritizing intentions or outcomes. So what I mean by that is as relevant to this conversation is, you know, would you rather, yeah, would, yeah, yeah. would you rather have someone who in their heart of hearts is, is, is pure, I was going to say it's pure as gold, but that's not really, it doesn't make much sense. But you get the idea. Someone who is truly altruistic, who has the greater good in mind with a million dollars or someone who is, uh, at their core, uh, Scrooge, but who out of mm-hmm. guilt to absolve themselves of guilt is going to behave as if they are altruistic uh-huh. with a hundred million dollars. Which would you, per- yeah. which would you prefer if they're of equal, Intellectual capacity, right? So their ability to problem solve mm-hmm. is equal. And now, I think I would probably opt if if I'm just focused on outcomes, fixing aspects of the educational system, fixing um, healthcare, whatever global literacy, whatever it might be. I'm happy to take the the extrinsically motivated rich guy as opposed to the intrinsically motivated less rich guy. Um, if, 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 you know what I mean? If I'm just looking for outcomes because I used to, and that doesn't mean don't give back. I think there are many arguments that could be made. And I wrote a a blog post for people interested called the karmic capitalist, um, about my thinking on this. But, um, the, uh, let me ask you a, just to sort of take us, uh, in, in a, in a related but slightly different direction. Um, Uh Uh, because I'm, I'm probably more, I, I'm not a Randian. By the way, I, exactly. this is,
1: this is the moment to bring in Burning Man, by the way. Okay, oh, yeah, bring it in, bring, bring it in. Uh, yeah. Like, can, can I ask you, so, can,
0: I, can I ask you one other question? And, it, and if yeah. it's going to be a long answer, we can come back to it. But, um, yeah, yeah. I want to know what it, what is financial security to you? Um, and do, yeah, you know, where, where does money fit into your life?
1: Well, I think it's very difficult to starve in Northern Europe. Um, Meaning, meaning,
0: it's unpleasant when you starve, or it's it's difficult to end up starving. It's just
1: like yes. By 2014, uh, people were of the opinion that starving in Europe was actually quite unpleasant. You know, in 2007, starving was great fun. Uh, No, I meant that like um, the um, you know, I suppose that. we, you know, we are blessed a bit with, um, with what the low bar is in terms of life outcomes, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, starving doesn't really happen in, in Western countries, although of course there's lots of tricky kind of situations which get close to that. But, um, but it's funny actually, cause, um, because I'm actually, not sure if I have a totally kind of honest internal perspective on this, Tim. <laughs> <Well, laughs> because uh, part of me yeah. is like, you know, part of me is like, um, you know, to be honest, I, I'd be perfectly happy just schlepping around Europe, chatting to people, uh, you know, uh, having the odd espresso and just generally experiencing the world that what I actually care about is um, conscious experience and understanding and you know blah, blah, blah. but at the same time you know i, I do enjoy a good party <laughs> and uh, um you know a nice home and so on and um i also quite enjoy like sitting you know in front of what are <laughs> my dreams it's funny dreams you have dreams all the time in your life and you know when i was five i wanted to be a carpenter when i was six i wanted to be beethoven whatever some of them stick with you and one of the ones that's just stuck with me is a mixture of exactly this blend between like, I don't give a crap about money and I basically want to live in the kind of utopian situation, which can only be sustained by enormous private wealth. And this <laughs> dream is that I, um, I, I, and I've had it since age of 15 and it won't go away, which is that my, my idea for what I really want to do in my life is to have a philosophical academy in, in Greece. Uh, and basically I, what, I, what I'm saying is like, Mediterranean sunshine, beautiful people in white robes, um, you know, people playing guitar on the beach, a kind of network of pavilions. You'd sit in one for a while, just contemplating the meaning of the color green for like six weeks. And then you kind of wander up the, um, the uh, you know, the arcade of columns by the swimming pool with all the beautiful people and have scintillating intellectual co- conversation. And you'd somehow be apart from the world of ambition and um, trying to sustained progress and you 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 you'd be sitting back and contemplating the concepts which normally drive our you know our intentions and you know you just basically be having a good old think about what the meaning of it all is but also you'd be surrounded by beautiful people in great luxury and sunshine <laughs> <laughs> so so it's like right here is like a, a conflict and so so certainly like i hold in um Contempt the idea of counting score in life through wealth, and there 's fairly small evidence to me in fact, I just go with the accepted evidence that up to a certain point it 's great to have some resources because um, it allows a certain level of relaxation relaxation comfort and kind of sustainable um, existence in the world, but beyond that it 's kind of vanity and um, stupidity to um, to pursue worldly resources, um, but you know uh, <laughs> funny enough, random thing. Aristotle is really funny as a moral philosopher, and one of his virtu- he's, one of the reasons he 's funny is that he doesn 't really believe you can be happy if you 're not beautiful, <laughs> 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 which is kind of probably true, but like you know we don 't dwell on it, and uh, anyway he 's also of not, not a, of a popular virtu-
0: advertising campaign. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's also got like a virtue which is only available to the rich. Um and his virtue system is kind of um is about poles. Like for every virtue there's an extreme exaggeration of that virtue, which becomes a kind of a sin or a vice, and there's uh there's a thing in the opposite direction. So not enough of it. And so uh one of his virtues only available to rich people is magnificence. <laughs> And so he thinks that the correct use of the energy that is wealth is to be magnificent, which is to say to throw amazing festivals and build awesome buildings and foster great artists and do this kind of thing. And then that can go in its extreme form to ostentation and sort of vanity, you know, sort of like um the kinds of characters I think who are you know, who occur wherever there's extreme wealth, you know, Russian oligarchs being the, the classic contemporary example, or towards miserliness where you have all this wealth and you're not organizing any parties. What the fuck? <laughs> you know? Uh, and, um, and I think that's probably like, you know, it's probably orthogonal, but it's probably a quite good way of thinking about wealth, which is that there is a responsibility to create joy um, and there is a responsibility to, um, and, and there's nothing inherently sinful about being wealthy or whatever. Um, but anyway, going back to this academy, to which, by the way, Tim, you're going to be hugely welcome. I hope you're going to hang out there very often. You know, I think it's going to be really cool. We're just going to sort of just hang about and chat about stuff.
0: Yeah, well, and, um, green you know, mean, is also mean, my favorite color, so I've had, I have a lot to ponder there. Okay, <laughs> good, yeah. <laughs> Interrogate yourself about yeah. that. You know, favorite. favor, I mean... I, uh, I want to. So, so I think the the rich, the use of riches is a, an interesting segue to Burning Man because there's, mm-hmm. there's a yeah, lot of yeah, this yeah. discussion about this, of course. Uh, but tell mm-hmm. me, tell me your impression of Burning Man. Uh, just I'll, I'll leave it wide open since you wanted to, you brought it up.
1: Yeah, I did bring it up. But, uh, so I mean, I love parties, and so I wanted to go for Burning Man for a while. My best friend Al is often a Burning Man, so eventually we got it together. We went to Burning Man. And, um, and I. Burning Man is an absolute ordeal to get to, especially if you come from the UK. So you got to get to San Francisco, and then there's all this like you got to purchase lots of objects and water and snacks and costumes and all this stuff, and then you got to do an eight-hour road trip. And about four hours in the road trip, you're like, wow, this is getting pretty much into the middle of nowhere. And then you keep on stepping on and whatever you get there, and then you spend four hours in a queue in a dust storm or whatever. Get to the gate, and then some like slightly sort of annoyingly kind of enlightened-looking character <laughs> says like, "Welcome, welcome home." <laughs> And you're like, fuck off, mate. I live in Hackney. Um, I I not show a music festival. And anyway, like in between that and leaving Burning Man, something happens where as you're leaving, you're like, well, he was right. This was my home. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's happened in between? And so and what's interesting is that I was not indoctrinated into the quite sophisticated kind of moral conceptual framework around Burning Man, all their principles and so on. Um, I was just sort of going along for a good party, but, um, but here's like my kind of quick fire theory about why Billy man is the most brilliant institution I've encountered and is the first evidence I've seen that, Oh no, the first ever, whatever, but is a compelling case for why Silicon Valley is actually a culturally important place on a par with say the Renaissance in Florence or something where like, if you look at the buildings in Silicon Valley, you're like, Jesus, these guys may, they they may build good software companies, but they sure don't know how to live. (laughs) You know, know, it's like, it's like the car park. You're like, uh, you know, anyway, so why is Burning Man so good? So there's no money, which cuts out one fundamental aspect of your social relationship to the world. There's basically no time Because no one's got um, a watch on them and no one would care if they did. Although there is time, but it's a different quality of time. It's basically the rhythm of sun and night. Um, And then there's there's no mobile phone. So no one is basically able to connect with their normal, unbelievably banal set of preoccupations. (laughs) And as a result, people are kind of stripped down. So you've got no money, no ambition. No obsession with what you're supposed to be doing, and there's basically no agenda whatsoever as regards what happens. And, and, and it's long enough, about a week, that like, unlike a kind of UK festival of which there are many great ones, including things like the Secret Garden Party. At the Secret Garden Party on the Saturday, you're like aware that on Sunday you're going to have to pack up and go home. But a burning man, the temporal horizon is just long enough that basically it might as well be infinite. You're just like. I am here. So that's the first thing. It's like you're stripped away of a lot of the kind of tendencies of interaction, which normally kind of make you basically a fucking boring person. <laughs> and then the second thing is that it's, um, that it, you kind of bounce around Burning Man and it operates, as far as I can tell, at four scales, which interweave in this kind of fractal way. So you've got like camps. So you've been in Wild West camp and you're there in Wild West. And at one point I found myself, playing a piano naked in a Wild West bar surrounded by Frenchmen singing the French National Anthem. You know, it's sort of basically a quite undistinguished way to be spending 20 minutes of your life. But anyway, so you're in the Wild West <laughs> and you're feeling kind of like you're in the Wild West. And then, you know, an art car goes past. You wonder how you get on the arc car and the arc car buzzes you off. somewhere. Else. So the arc car is kind of the second order of matters. So you're in the Wild West. feels like the Wild West you're kind of open because you're not thinking about money or time or what you're supposed to be doing or your career or like how you really want to achieve this by next year. But unfortunately this is getting, all that's cleared out. And so, um, so you're like, oh, I could get on the art car. Art car one order of magnitude uh, scale wise down. And the art car might be like a fish or a boat or whatever. Get on the boat. And then you're living on a boat, <laughs> you know, and the whole vibe is boatish. So you've entered a different world. And then you talk to a person on the boat, sort of, third scale of spatial organization down and the person is not does not have an agenda because they have basically completely forgotten about all the things which preoccupy them normally and so you get further in about five minutes of conversation than you do with a flatmate in about a year because you know you're just say like, how are you feeling it's like oh not so good because of you know, the sort of thing which no one would ever tell you normally. And then, you know, where are you from? And then because you're really open, because you're not thinking about your money or your time or your, the things you have to do, you're like, oh, well, actually, the fact that you're from Wisconsin and a little farm is kind of interesting in a way which it wouldn't be according to my normal filters. And, of course, this is, none of this is rational. It's just a kind of intuitive flow. But so you have very rich, and so people are their own worlds which you dive into. So we've had the, the camp, where you're like in a world. And then you got the art car, which is basically like kind of floating nightclubs. But anyway, you got an art car and that's kind of a world and then a person is the world. And, and then it's got this gift economy where the gifts are themselves their own world. So sometimes it's like, um, you know, a little object which, um, which expresses some profound story about this person's life or about the world or anything else. Um, one person, and I should add, uh, since we're on record, that I didn't indulge, was like, this, my friend, is uh, one of only 10 DMT inhalers in the entire world. <laughs> so that would have been a world to dive into as a gift. Anyway, so, um, and because of the lack of temporal horizon, you kind of bounce between these spatial levels. You're in a camp, you're talking to a person, you're like on an art car, you're know and you cease to kind of track how they relate to each other. So the whole thing becomes, has the character of a kind of an external hallucination where one fascinating piece of the world will pop up and dissolve into the next fascinating piece of the world, a bit of the world. And there's no attachment and there's no nothing kind of thing. You just, you're just bouncing around this extraordinary experience. And as a result of that, quite fundamental concepts change you know you're like um you know your relationship to um the distinction between a nightclub and a piece of art dissolves um your your concept of um what a friend is and what someone you don't know is blurs because everyone's kind of a friend you're um and anyway, and of course like this all sounds quite pompous but but you're also having a, a terribly good time. <laughs> 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 anyway, so, um, anyway, so like this kind of, this is really striking because I was not indoctrinated before going there. Right. And within two days, I was living in this kind of magical invented thing where what was so striking was that it was all based on giving and generosity and openness and transient creativity and, um, the structure of the party, if that's what Burning Man is, is just of unbelievable genius. I mean, I I, I was staggered. I love parties. I I studied it. Yeah, you know, I once tried to write a book about house parties. Actually, um, it wasn't very good, and I I never completed it. But but you know, I love parties, and, I, and I'd never imagined a party could be like a dance in the brain of a philosopher or something like that. This <laughs> like, I, I, and it's really like it's it's a way of like. Uh, it it 's a party which kind of gives you insights into totally different ways of relating to yourself and the world, and I love the fact that it 's transient because a it means that only through the proactive participation of the people who are involved will it ever exist but b it um it means that the meaning has to go outside into the world in a way, so you know you don 't go to be man and they you have your like isolated kingdom like my Philosophical Academy in Greece, for instance, where you're kind of denying the world and then living your own private dream in a kind of onanistic kind of nonsense. It's actually just like an opportunity to reconceive stuff and then go back to the world and and then like think, oh, fuck, well, just like Burning Man, the world is a consequence of the actions of everybody who's in it. Just like Burning Man, any form of relationship is possible. You know, you know, whatever. And so it's, a, it's fundamentally a mind expanding thing. And then, although I have no knowledge of this whatsoever, it seems to me to be intuitively very plausible that, um, that, um, the kind of genius of Silicon Valley, the kind of the fact that it's creating experiences and possibilities of life which, um, which genuinely touch upon, um, You know, the transformation of humanity in subtle ways at the moment and bit by bit and iterative, of course. I I, I can only assume they are somehow connected.
0: (laughs) So I I have a a challenge for you. Well, the first is a recommendation. I think you'd really enjoy a book called Spectacle by David Rockwell and Bruce Mao, Uh MAU. It's uh, basically a visual compilation, essays, and photographs that look at the phenomenon and history of uh, massive public performances or events around the world which is uh, is really just a uh-huh. phenomenal tome the 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 challenge is and this is something i've thought about because I, I get i wouldn't say agoraphobic but because i'm intrinsically quite introverted i've been to burning man twice i enjoyed it uh but uh-huh. i i end up spending a lot of time in my own camp uh partially just to recharge if you if you were to if you if you were tasked with creating uh, as much of the benefits that you derive from Burning Man with a group of 20 people on your own, so you're creating your own experience to provide many of the benefits of Burning Man for 20 people, what would you do? How would you do that?
1: That's a super question. Okay. So, uh, I, of course, in some sense, I'm just going to make up whatever i want to say. Yeah, yeah. I haven't and, and no, just, and, and no,
0: budgetary yeah. no, no no. constraints.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's just sort of do it with, with, with that, with my little theory there about why Burning Man is sick. Let's just apply that to 20 people. So, um, a massive hero narrative road trip to get wherever you're going. So you're like spatially and experientially separated from your boring life. Mm-hmm. Um, no phones. No money, no motivation to talk about, um, your intentions in the world, but more just sort of open thing. Um, a shared creative project where you, um, somehow like spontaneously democratically come up with a cool way of making everyone else happy, you know, perhaps collaboratively in, in this other space and then enough time to be, to not be worried that it's going to end tomorrow. Um, and so just like riffing on this, just like thinking of it, you know, what we should do is, um, you know, what we might do is collect the crew. Some, I think, with 20 people, it'd be good if they're like some known to each other, but it was kind of a mixture of groups of friends or whatever. Um, agree on like some random distant point. Okay, we're going to go to the Hebridean island for a week. I'll see you there on the 3rd of January next year. <laughs> whatever, it, right. it's miles away or what have you. And then, um, and then, um, yeah, then just go there, minus mobile phone, blah, 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 and just rejoice, I guess, in the fact that, like, people are f- so cool. Which is something, which I'd oddly rather forgotten before very much. was just like, oh, people are so annoying. They're always, like, in the queue in front of me while waiting for the bus and, like, you know, et cetera. Um, but, like, you know, uh, uh, of course, this blends quite easily into sort of cults. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Which is why why having a, 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 a participatory non, um, um, yeah, non sort of not driven by concepts experience is quite important. I mean, I suppose one of the paradoxes of my mind is that it is driven by concepts in a sense, like there's this concept of radical self-sufficiency and generosity and so on, but um but you know, I, I've got a party in mind. I mean, you know, I think that um, that I mean, you can hardly fail to have a good experience if you're with twenty like generous, open people with loads of time away from your life, um, and you're feeling great about yourself because you're in the middle of a hero narrative because you actually successfully got
0: there. And um, and this could probably be done with two people as well. I feel um, like I feel like um, so. I've thought about this. I've thought about doing it in a wilderness setting, primarily in my own head. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of recreating the elements of... Go ahead, of, a
1: lot wilderness, Tim. Yeah.
0: yeah, of Burning Man. There, there's a project you might find interesting, or people listening might find interesting, called... um Well, the guy... Station to Station. And there's a guy named Doug Aitken, A-I-T-K-E-N. And he basically packed this... I think it's 11 cars. I'm making up the numbers a bit. But uh 11 cars of a train full of musicians and artists and all sorts of craziness. I mean, think about it as, as sort of burning man on, uh-huh. on a train and went from city to city doing these pop, these massive pop-up performance or pop-up performances uh-huh. where they would take these, uh, abandoned buildings or old train stations and turn them into concerts for one night and then pack up and move on their way. Uh, oh, wow. which were called nomadic happenings, pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, Cool. How do you take the experience of Burning Man and uh create more of those uh, peak experiences, if you want to call them that? Uh What are other ways of pulling your head out of the mundane bullshit and doldrums that constitute the vast majority of most people's waking existences? I
1: mean... Great question, and, you know, and, and not one I've really successfully answered for myself, but <laughs> but I'm more than happy to advise about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is a fundamental question, and I think um, I think that many of the um, our kind of inherited cultural um, you know tendencies are like this a bit. You know, like um, one of the best parties I ever went to was like a moon celebration. And it was kind of, it was on a cliff, um, and the sea was like formidable and raging beneath. And it was all night and, um, it was a full moon and the tide over the course of the night came up and there were kind of crazy ritual dances to celebrate them. <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty eccentric. But wh- i tell you what I came out of that with was I kind of like, was like, oh fuck, the moon and the tide are connected. And, of course, like, I'd learned that as a five-year-old schoolboy and not understood it in the interesting way. The interesting way to understand it is to perceive the moon and perceive its pull on the sea in real time, to actually, like, feel in your bones the connection between these two things. Um, and, anyway, so that, that was a kind of a really cool thing. And I guess it kind of gets back to, like, uh, commonality, I guess, commonality between people, which is that being yourself is quite a fun thing. Um but it's not quite as nice as noticing that you are like an instance of humanity um and that um everyone else is kind of basically the same and actually so are the animals and in fact it's all matter and whatever. <laughs> and you know, and it's kinda of paradoxical thing that when you perceive in your bones your own insignificance. You feel better. <laughs> yeah, you know that's a really
0: good way. That's an astute way to put it. That's very true. When you when you're yes when you're less concerned with all of the just the minutia and bullshit in your life that is really at the end of the day very trivial in the span of of history and the scale the scale of the world, <laughs> you feel a lot better about it. Uh, it's
1: really interesting, isn't it? But like, uh, I, actually, I had this when I was at school. Like, occasionally, I would like I don't know, I would lose a debating competition or like discover that I was a loser in a more general sense. And um, I had like a a, what you might kind of call in a way like a a mind hack, which, you know, I'd be sitting on the loo or something and i just think about like, oh, everything feels terrible and awful and it's all, it's all gone to shit sort of thing. And then I'd be like, but if you think about it, the stars are really far away. And then you kind of try to imagine the world from the stars and then you sort of zoom in and then you'd be like, oh, this is tiny little character. There for a fragment of time, worrying about. <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> it's just like just take a chill pill. It's you know. Um, but you know, like it's it's you know to, to your question, how to put that into your life. I don't really know. It's really tricky, but I guess um another thing is to <laughs> to try and draw this back is to segment a little bit. You know, to make sure there's. One day a week, where your mobile phone's off, and to make sure that you know with your best friends, you find a time whatever once every three months to um update them on just how stupid reality is and to share that <laughs> um, and that you know if you're in a relationship uh where like you you kind of your um, you know the the struggle of like existence is kind of occluding the parallel magic of what could be happening there. You at least occasionally find the time to do that, you know, whatever. Um, and of course, there's, there's, I suppose the more, the more fundamental suggestion would be to like, stop trying so much, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> which, which, you know, I mean, like tricky, you know, yeah. because, you know, one's got such a, such an interesting project, you know, um, you know, like, <laughs> but, um, but I thought I, I got, I got this wonderful friend called Paul, Who's like, you know, one of the most kind of intelligent people I've ever met and very, Anyway, he, um, he lives. So when I was talking to him about the academy, the Greek ideal of my kind of um, imaginary possible future existence, he was like, well, you know, um, why does it need to be in one place? And I was like, oh, it's true. It could just be you know, in the world, like the world. And then he was like, why does it need to be with the same group of people? And I was like, oh, that's well, true. You know, like updating the people is quite good fun. And then he was like, um, and, um, you know, why does it have to be in sunshine? Why can't it be in a mixture of things? And I was like, it's true. Like I quite like rainstorms and, you know, Nordic climates and so on. Um And, you know, and then, you know, kind of almost went further. just like, you know, why does it even um need to be outside of your life at all? Um, and he lives a life which is very humble in a way, um, but quite profound in another where, you know, he travels, he works an absolutely minimal amount. He's so clever that he can sort of do like five hours of translation a week and survive, you know, like whatever. And, you know, he learns languages and he falls in love with people. Um, and he, uh, watches amazing music and he, has the most incredible network of friends. I mean, I feel he's one of my best friends and he probably feels I'm one of about a hundred because he spends 10 hours a day on friendship. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, when we're in the middle of that conversation. I was like, ah, oh, Jesus Christ. I'm just like, you know, I'm just uh, guilty of, um, of, um, grandiose fantasy where it's, uh, you know, the life I'm desiring through these, um, these concepts, or whatever is actually just, it's right there. It's something which I could be living if I would only see sort of working 12 hours a day in a startup. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> so, it's, it's,
0: it's very, it's very hard that balance. Uh, if, uh, and I, I even hesitate to use the word balance, but the, yeah. there, there is a, there is I there, there's a, um, it's challenging to balance the appreciation of the present moment with mm-hmm the drive to build things because the people who tend to spend, uh, and this, I mean, quite apart from that, we could debate the value of building different things, but the people who build the most very often have the least present state appreciation. And the people who have are entirely in the present moment don't build very much. Uh, so you, you could, you could argue, um, you could argue very strongly for both, uh, ends of the spectrum, but trying to borrow the best practices from both is, is challenging. And maybe the, and maybe the answer yeah. is that you, that you, that you oscillate between the two. I don't know, but, um,
1: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of, um, and I think the, 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 the question you alluded to is, is a very interesting one, which is like, is it, because in some sense, both you and I, um, are enthusiasts for building, so you know I've um, you know I'm, I've tried the last five years of my life obsessively to memorize, um, and you know you've produced a wonderful like collection of um, of, uh, of books and and um, and amusing and um, rich perspectives which you've shared with other people, and you know you've enriched a lot of people's lives, no doubt, um, and you know that seems inherently meritorious. Right. It seems like that's got to be like a good thing to be doing, uh, to, to be trying to do something. Right. But on the other hand, like, you know, um, if nobody was trying to do things, what would that be so bad? Or if, (laughs) if everyone like tried to do quarter as much, um, I mean, there's, there's a great book by Bertrand Russell called In Praise of Idleness. Oh, it's a great, he, uh,
0: great, great essay, yeah.
1: And he's got this great quote in there, which is like, workers of two kinds, moving objects at or near the Earth's surface or telling other people to do so. The first is ill-paid and unpleasant. The second is you know, great fun and rather well remunerated. And um, anyway, that kind of concept of moving objects at or near the Earth's surface You'd have to update for the present day to so like moving information at or near the Earth's surface. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, anyway, in that essay, he's like, well, you know, a kind of classic economic insight, I guess, which is that, you know, we can make stuff twice as efficient and work half as much, or we can make stuff twice as efficient and work the same amount and make, t- <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and it's not clear to me that, um, that making stuff twice as efficient and then working the same amount is
0: the correct response. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, Ed, I'd love to ask you a couple of um, bite-sized questions. I know that it's, mm-hmm. uh, I want to let you get to your, your proper Friday evening uh, since I've, I've kind of got you under lock and key yep. here in the, in the office. So I'd like to unleash you upon the world, but Uh, I'd love to ask you a couple of fast questions and um, Mm -hmm. you you can feel free to elaborate, but uh, I'll try to, I'd love to, to sort of uh, hit you with a couple of these before we come to a close. The the first is one I don't usually ask, but I have to ask because you've you've used the words press up, which is push up for you, Yanks listening and other Mm -hmm. things. For instance, what is, what is a, what is the one stereotypically British thing that Americans should really, um, appreciate or might get enjoyment of?
1: That's a good question. I think, um, the, <laughs> I love
0: the ka Was that a toaster? <laughs>
1: um, oh, that's, that's, that's a new subscription, Tim. Oh, nice. <laughs> All right. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, the, um, it was kind of comedy in the office, but, um, uh, I think the because um, I, I I've I've lived a bunch in Boston when I did textiles there and I was here in America and the the thing which always kind of really impresses and amazes me about um Americans and which by contrast is is different in the British people is that British people are like fundamentally embarrassed about the expression of um um intention. <laughs> <laughs> that it's almost like there's something like fundamentally vulgar in human in, in British life. <laughs> I suppose human life. British life. It's like the American calling baseball the World Series. But anyway, um <laughs> there's something fundamentally um embarrassing about stating intentions. Um and what's so liberating about Calic America is that um is that that embarrassment doesn't exist. But at the same time back to Britain It's, um, it's this terribly, uh, beautiful thing. And I kind of think it's kind of connected a lot to British humor. Um, and, uh, which is this basic kind of consciousness of the absurdity of trying (laughs) combined with actually still trying.
0: What, what is a good, uh, gateway drug for British comedy for people who, uh, f- for real dyed in the wool Americans who perhaps i've i because uh-huh. i've i've seen some British humor I have a lot of trouble with I just can't quite figure it out and then there's uh-huh. other British humor um or British ish humor uh uh-huh. like Shaun of the Dead, which I find completely hilarious uh, <laughs> so what wh- what is a good gateway drug if you had to pick one entry oh, I- point? Gateway? Why are you asking me about Gateway? Can't you just ask me what I think is pure genius? Sure. Okay. Um, all right. All right. All right. I'll <laughs> let you upgrade my question. What is what is pure genius? I just don't want it to be pearls before swine. I want the like to educate, and I'm throwing myself in that. Right. You know. I'm, I mean, I
1: think does the thick of it exist in America? Is so there a kind of American version of it? Well, my favorite. Comedian is a guy called Armando Yanucci. Um, so, Armando, and then Yanucci is I-A-N-N-N-U-C-C-I. Mm-hmm. And he had this show called The Armando Yanucci Show, <clears throat> which actually I think was a failure even on British TV. So, this might not be brilliant for a, a Gary joke. And, and I think part of the reason for that is that he's personally, he's actually not a terribly charismatic performer. He's just an absolutely brilliant. Uh, writer and conceiver of comedy. But the Amanda you Need to show was, um, this brief, had a brief appearance on British TV and, um, somehow captured, um, both like a wicked love of life and an absolute horror at everything which is going on through a kind of completely incoherently, um, absurdist humor. So for instance, I don't think of a good example, but, um, for instance, there was one sketch which involves a guy driving his car really fast where a very, very specific miles per hour, about 157 miles an hour. He, um, enters into a flawless state of perfect meditative perfection where he doesn't have to make any decisions. He just avoids all pedestrians and just disappears, but then it has to get back down to zero miles an hour without killing people. Um, Another one is a begins with a cityscape um where you see all the the lights coming on in the morning and with each light you hear the audio of the person screaming about the futility of their existence as the narrator says this man designs bacon packaging for a living <laughs> this person is in charge of Bedford supporter supply oh god this is the manager of bewitched bastards i hate it
0: you know this <laughs> Uh, sorry, it's uh, yeah. very like Kierkegaard.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, that's such a poor advertisement for a genius comic. I, yeah, yeah, no, I, no. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. But um, it's always, it's always a bit tricky. But um, you know, I, I would recommend, I'd recommend to your original question, what's a good gateway? Um, I think Monty Python's a great gateway still, because. Um, because you can't help but be delighted by their kind of cheeky enthusiasm, even as you're just tuning into the humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in contemporary Thing, there's a, there's a thing called Alan Partridge, which is sort of written by Armando Iannucci as well, which, um, which is uh, the story of a radio DJ from Norfolk who is uh, a, actually has shadows of like David Brent from The Office, but in a um, in a kind of richer more amusing fashion um and um, and, and it is sort of um trials and tribulations so um so alan Potrich would be my gateway drug perfect uh <laughs> <laughs> you were looking you really looking for a one line answer when you No I no
0: I love it you're you're, a, you're I, you are you have one of the most colorful vocabularies and uh Cadences of any, anyone I know. So I, I, I loved your emails. I was going to actually read the sequence of emails (laughs) that you had recently where you introduced, uh, me to one of, uh, one of your friends, now a mutual friend. Uh, it's just where most people are like, Joe me, John, John me, Joe. Take it from here. You, 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 you create these wonderfully, um, I'm not going to say they're not antiquated. That's not the word that I'm looking for, but they're, they're very, uh, they read like a, a civil war love letter or, 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 or something. It's, they're, they're so eloquent. And I'm like, God damn, like this guy, I, I I wonder if the amount of effort you expend on that is the amount of effort that I would have to expend uh, to create such a thing. Because you're, you have very, you're very prosaic and very entertaining in that way. Is, is what did your parents do? If you don't mind me asking professionally,
1: uh- uh, so my dad, um, was a coder, um, actually. Uh, he refused to teach me to code, by the way, because he thought I should, uh, play in the garden, which I still vaguely resent, but, you know, <laughs> I did, I did enjoy uh, playing in the garden. And my mum was a sort of teacher. I guess, uh, I, I did, I, I did have an interesting education because I was in, um, we lived near Oxford and I ended up going to a school which had, um, lots of Oxford academics children in it. And I was, um, part of a, a class, you know, maybe I was quite good at um, uh, my subjects, I was part of a class where the other people in this class were just sort of um, this amazingly colorful um, bunch of precociously intellectual characters. Um, and so, I guess I did have a bit of that. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I still kind of laugh about the the kind of situation that that represented, but because um, it was in many respects quite unhealthy. Um, why, why was that? Uh, un- then,
0: why was that unhealthy?
1: well um I don't think it's good to peak intellectually at the age of thirteen <laughs>
0: um, and, and i think that um do you think a lot of them did or do you think that it was uh... um,
1: well i think that um that it was actually quite it was quite a magical time and it was um and um I think that it's quite rare in life to be surrounded by um people who challenge you and who like you <laughs> yeah
0: yeah
1: for sure um, and so so it's quite it's quite kind of a, it's quite a great experience it's a wonderful experience to have um but like i think a lot of the people who are in that situation in the school then went off to other schools we you know a variety of other schools where that didn't exist and so they ended up being quite all of us ended up in some sense being quite nostalgic at the age of 14. <laughs> so just to give you an example, our favorite film as a group in our teenagers was With Nail and I. I don't know if you've seen With Nail and I, I. but it? it's a, again. Have you seen the film With Nail and I? No. With Nail? Oh my goodness. With, With Nail. Space, so it's actually, N-A-I-L. It's actually it's like all one word with nails. So it's it's the name of a character in this film. Uh, so this is your gateway drug to British humour. Alright, alright. <laughs> What's with Nell and I. Uh, so it's it's basically a, a film about some washed up actors um, um but full of passion, <laughs> struggling their way um
0: <laughs> on a kind of comedy road trip in their late twenties. I it's sort of I feel like every like Netflix description of British comedy just makes me want to slip my wrists before I even get started. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But, uh, but yes, uh, with Nell and I,
1: with Nell Oh yeah. Please, please watch with Nell because it's a, um, it's basically a film made out of fragments of insanely quotable bits and bobs. Um, and, and it's, um, and it's, um, I mean it's intensely funny, incredibly romantic, and um kind of like a profound narrative, I guess, about um what it's like to have high hopes for life and then discover that it's not quite as easy as you think you kind of. can. Anyway, it's, it's 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 so charming. It's so and you know, it's about friendship and um so it's a really wonderful film. Um anyway, so it's but it's also very nostalgic. I'd <laughs> say so, so, but yeah, you know, really, it's not really a healthy age of fourteen. It's like, oh gosh, I remember when I was thirteen; everything was so good. We used
0: to use words like "portentous," but now I just say "spoon." Um, <laughs> what now? It, aside from, it sounds like you had uh, I an mean, intellectually stimulating schooling experience at that point. What can you can you think of a, a a specific defining moment of your childhood? Is there anything that stands out in terms of forming you into the person you are today? Um, I think, uh,
1: um, I, I can't think of uh, something which I could honestly report as like a causal factor, but I do have a, a couple of favorite childhood memories. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, uh, well, one of which was, um, which I think is like, it's like, this is like this memory is something which I would, if I was held hostage and someone was about to delete this memory, I would pay if I had them hundreds of thousands of dollars to not delete because it was a moment in my childhood, maybe I was five in the garden, looking out at some trees in the distance. And for whatever reason with my dad, I was discussing basically visual perception, but seeing, and he was saying, we must have been, I must have been commenting on, I don't know how it began, but he was saying, Oh, the light bounces off the trees and goes into your eyes. And I found this incredibly confusing, and I was like, "No, no, no!" But my eyes go out and touch the trees. That my my vision goes out and touches the trees. And he was like, "No, no, no!" The the your eye the the photons bounce off the tree or from the sun, and they enter your eye, and that's how you come up with the picture. And I was like, and I remember just intensely the weirdness of the confusion. I remember getting to a point where I was happy to accept that my vision reached out to the halfway point <laughs> to meet the light. In between me and the trees and uh, uh, but I just couldn't even conceive of how perception could be passive um, and anyway I, I bumped into this thing years later when studying um, psychology where a lecturer mentioned the theory of uh, an Arabic psychologist and, um, and philosopher called uh, oh my goodness i'm not sure if I can remember his name but like al hazan I think his name is and Al was a guy who in the the 12th century or something um, disproved the theory of exteroception, which apparently was really popular until like the year 1200, the theory that your eye went out and met the world Hmm. rather than your eye just sits there passively and receives information. And then the second thing which amplified this memory, you know, beyond the family connection and and just the preciousness of the virgin perspective on the world, was that when I got intensely into the philosophy of perception as an undergraduate, um, I got into this guy called Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who's a kind of poetic, super cool cigarette smoking French philosopher who writes beautiful prose. And he, um, he has this theory of perception where, where the activity is given back to perception, not because vision goes out spatially, but because perception is this active, probing, question-asking activity involving, like, a profound resonance between you and the world, which is so far away from neuroscience as it's normally thought of, where it's all, like, input, processing, representation, experience. This was um, this really much more beautiful and, and um, and I'll come back to this in a second, but much more true-to-experience experience Theory of perception, which is that we're in this kind of dialogue or resonance with the world where our brains and the world, um, kind of vote a resonance, which means that our brain changes and then the meaning of the stuff in the world is altered. And it's a bit like dancing with somebody, you know, there's input, there's output, but it's the, the pattern between you which makes the most sense in the end, which is what's actually happening. And so to wheel that back, um, <laughs> the The core memory is incredible because it describes a naivety of perception, which you can never get back. You can never perceive the world with such a stupid idea of how perception works. But at the same time, you can never actually experience perception devoid of the concepts we have for what's happening to it. Um, and the second thing is, is that it's true. That's what it feels like to perceive. <laughs> and we, we that. So that—that's my favorite childhood memory. Didn't I can't? I, it actually only became significant later on, but
0: um, but I love it. Well, let me let me touch on the the, the aspect, the aspects of perception, some of the aspects of perception that you brought up. I think you and I, and if you if you, I, I'm not, if you're not comfortable talking about this, let me know. But okay. I be- I believe you and I were chatting when we had some wine uh, many moons ago in San Francisco about. Effectively augmented synesthesia. So, using hardware. If if I'm if I'm mixing people up, let me know. But but using using hardware to uh, to see smells or or uh, have have these this type of commingling of the senses and perception. Could you talk about that for for a second? I don't know where that went or where it was, but uh, (laughs) if if you could explain what you were doing, I think people would find it very interesting.
1: Well, yeah. So. so after um I give a bit of biography, I'll be as quick as possible here, but I went to study under a guy called um Kevin O'Regan in Paris. And Kevin O'Regan, I had encountered when I was right up to my final exams at university. I you know, I was in this intense period of study, partly because I'd been drunk most of the rest of the time, and so I had to really ram it in. And so all these kind of ideas were new in my mind and they're fusing together. And I discovered this paper by this guy, Kevin O'Regan. Um which um, was in behavioral and brain sciences and was called A Sensory Motor Theory of Visual Perception. And in it, he quoted a series of the most wonderful, obscure experiments from psychology, which um, one of which was this tactile visual substitution device created by a guy called Paul Bach E. Rita. Bach like the composer, why like and in Spanish, Rita like... Lovely Rita, poor Barky Rita. And he was building devices for the blind to see through touch. So the Tactile Visual Stimulation System, TVSS, basically would take a camera on your glasses and would transform that visual input into basically a highly pixelated sort of 100 by 100 array of vibrating pins to hold against your back or your thigh or your leg or wherever there was a nice surface on your body to touch. And The fascinating thing about this device is if you, if someone else is holding the camera and you have this, it just feels like random, totally patternless scratching. And when you are wearing the glasses and you first touch it to your skin, it also feels like that. But when you move around, you begin to track the correspondences between movement and sensation. And to cut a long story short, eventually you end up short-circuiting all the noise, and you actually perceive through touch a visual-like experience of space before you. So you feel looming objects. You see things going past the side. You, you feel things approaching as you go to them. And you have a feeling of space. And the feeling of space is based not on input, which is now like a totally different form of input, but on the patterns and connections between um, your movement and the sensations which, which arise. And so this is like an incredibly profound thing about the nature of consciousness, which is... Um, Roughly speaking, Kevin's theory, uh, which I basically roughly believe, is that um, the, the quality of experience is like the pattern of movements you're able to make and the expected consequences of those movements. And so his metaphor was, if you're holding a bottle of wine in your hand, as I am now, by the way, and I've nearly finished it, <laughs> but if you're holding a bottle of wine, um, you're only touching, and you have your eyes closed, you're only touching part of the bottle of wine but you kind of feel the rest of it even though you're not feeling it. You know that if you move your hand upwards, it's not like it couldn't be a tube or just like a little blocky sphere or something, even though the touch would be the same. Your, your perceptual experience extends beyond the current input, and it's based in expectation. Okay, so that's the preamble. And as a result of that, I ended up doing a PhD, trying to do a PhD in philosophy of perception, where the output that year was to consider what the difference between color and smell is. Um, and to do that, I kind of did what that, that tactile visual substitution system in a way describes the difference between touch and vision, because it says touch feels totally different, but actually if touch is given the same sensory motor patterns as vision, it begins to feel like vision. So you can experience vision through touch by the patterns of interaction. And so I tried to come up with a theory of how color and smell Feel like they do, and my god, they feel mysterious. Hmm. You know, you smell cinnamon. How? What connection does that have with reality? You see any color, and particularly a beautiful, rich color, you know, the azure blue of a morning sky, or or green, or whatever, of a kind of rainforest canopy, and it feels like inherently weird. Like, what is the connection between your experience, this rich, uh, intangible emotion, in, in a way? and reality. It's very easy with vision, because you're like, oh, the glass looks round? It is round. You know, it's a very kind of military <laughs> connection. But with colour, you're like, wow, that orange. I'm just looking at a kind of the blinking light of an orange computer here. And actually, you tune into the orange, it's like, what the hell fucking relationship does that have to Atoms bumping around space. It seems like a totally different kind of quality. So, anyway, <laughs> Scott, I couldn't tell this anecdote any longer. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. But uh, if anyone's still here, about seven hours. But anyway, so, um, um, the, if, ed, if, if of, anyone the, is
0: still listening, I'm just going to interrupt. This is something that Kevin Rose, buddy might mine, pulled on me. If anyone is still listening to this podcast, please let us know what you think. Shoot me or Ed a note on Twitter and put hashtag EdEdGoodGood. Good. Um, this is an inside joke from a long time ago to let us know. But Ed, please continue.
1: Yeah, at Ted Cook on Twitter, by the way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so, um, so you know, and so the thought experiment I came up with was like, let's let's imagine you um, you see in black and white. So your basic vision is black and white. And then when you look at what is, in fact, in reality, a green object, you experience a particular smell, say the smell of whatever, leaves. Mm-hmm. And then you look at what is a blue object and you experience um, whatever, the, uh, the smell of a fresh sea wind or something like that. So arbitrary connections between the things. But the, the first question was, like, could you experience those as qualities of the object? And the answer I came up with was, was basically, well, of course you would, because... You know, when I currently look at an orange object, I'm just especially looking at it, and then I'm having the experience of orange, and I look away, and I cease having the experience of orange, and I look back, and I have the experience of orange. And so if that orange was being kind of put into my head by an evil goblin who just gave me the orange feeling every time I looked at the, in fact, orange hammock which I see in black and white, well, then I would experience that ex- that color as being, which the color is in fact, a smell or a sound, it could be, on the object. So the connection between movement i address with my perceptual organs i i look at the hammock and suddenly it's going jing 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 look away it ceases to do that i look back at it jing 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 i look away it ceases to do that after like doing that a million times you wouldn't think that the sound was coming from any other place than the surface of the object right and i i'm still of the kind of somewhat smug completely incoherent opinion this is actually quite a fundamental insight into um, <laughs> into into like the mystery of sensations, which is that we attribute to the cause of the sensation everything which comes with it emotionally and da da da, and we kind of project those. Project is actually a poor word, but it's an easy one to relate to. We kind of project those onto the surface of the object when, the, in some sense, they come from us. It's just that when we look at the audit, they're there. Um, Then you know, in a way, this kind of goes back to the chats we were having earlier about, um, about our relationships with other people and even situations and aspects of ourselves, which is that when we think about a particular thing, if all the things that evokes in us are only evoked by that thing, we think that is a characteristic of the thing not of
0: our interaction with a thing or a person. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> so. I, no, I love this. I I want to ask you, have you experimented with uh, removing different types of sensory input, going a period of time without sight, going a period of time without hearing, anything like that?
1: I, I have occasionally done, yeah, little little games like that. Um, uh, not to the heroic extent of a mathematician called Seymour Papert. Who um, who trained himself to look through mirrors so the world was up down reversed oh, for like months at a time um, <laughs> so that it kind of righted itself. But anyway, um, I, I have had an experience when I was um, I have had an experience with friends where you you walk around town blindfolded, led by another person, mm-hmm. and that is so cool. So you just get get a good friend, someone you trust, and say I'm going to be blindfolded. Or you're going to be blindfolded. And I'm just going to lead you around town. And that's magic. Um, because you can have the experience of perceiving the world, not visually, but just through sound. And, and, you know, it's fun in the obvious sense, but it's also like, Oh wow. Like I actually can perceive the world through sound and what's more, I perceive it in a different, but in many ways, richer fashion. <laughs> um, since, since by the way, it's, since occasionally you're citing some cool books, um, there's a book called "Touching the Rock," um, by um, "Touching the Rock." And I don't sure if I can remember the guy's name, but by John um, something or other, Holt, perhaps John Holt. Um, but "Touching the Rock," Google it, and um, and it's a it's the story of a guy who goes blind very very gradually for twenty years and then finally becomes completely blind and many interesting things about it. One of which is that he says that the difference between having a tiny crack of indeterminate light and nothing was as big as the difference between indeterminate light and full vision, because suddenly he was just in the abyss right? and there was just no visual connection. Um, but the second thing is kind of like that he has, he's a kind of theologian, um, but he has this wonderful reflections on how how he came to enjoy the world being blind, and one go to example is um, that rain is the best thing for blind people because you can hear the world in three dimensions because the pattering of the raindrops on the roofs and the pavement, the lampposts and the and the buildings gives you because of the echo because of the particular it gives you a sense of three d space where most of the time your 3d space only goes like a couple of yards in front of you. And otherwise it's just the void, um, stuff like that, which kind of, um, cool way games for just enjoying your senses generally. So so fast.
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: um, Well, so I was just thinking that, you know, for anyone who's endured this long, um, that would be a kind of, I think quite a valuable recommendation. It's like, you know, we're drawing a few things together, you know, next time there's due to be a rainstorm, rather than thinking, like, oh no, I'm not going to be able to go to Santa Cruz and sun myself or something, think like, get one of your best friends, go out in the rain, blindfold them, and allow them to perceive through the magic of hearing
0: the world in all its mysterious awesomeness via audition. <laughs> oh, it's a brilliant suggestion. I, um, I also wonder you know, at, at what point will we see, and it could be done a couple of different ways technologically, but people using, let's just say blind people using something like an Oculus Rift or it wouldn't necessarily be an Oculus Rift could just be some type of uh, yeah. device that's attached where you can upload very accurate you know, to the centimeter uh, mapping, mm-hmm. 3D mapping of the world around them. Let's just say in a 10 mile radius uh, or there could be some device for sensing all of this that provides them with Auditory feedback or other types of feedback that tells them exactly where they are. And what this makes me think of, there's a one of my, yeah, my one of my favorite articles I've read in the last ten years is an article in wow. uh, in Men's Journal. I just looked it up. People can Google mm-hmm. the, bl- the blind man who taught himself to see, and it's wow. about Daniel Kish, K-I-S-H, and he's been uh, sightless since he was a year old. He can mountain bike, he can nav- navigate the wilderness alone, he can recognize a building as far away as a thousand feet, I'm just kind of reading the subtitle here, but he does it through echolocation, the same way that bats find their way around. Uh, he, he has a, the ability to click in a very, very methodical, uh, precise way to determine exactly where things are and where he is. And uh, I'll just give people a teaser with the first paragraph because this this entire piece blew my mind. And the, the first paragraph is the first thing Dan- – this is the the author speaking, Michael Finkel. The first thing Daniel Kish does when I pull up to his tidy gray bungalow in Long Beach, California is make fun of my driving. You're going to leave it that far from the curb, he asks. He's standing on his stoop a good 10 paces from my car. I glance behind me as I walk up. I am indeed parked about a foot and a half from the curb. I mean it's just so <laughs> amazing. So amazing. Yeah and it it also raises questions for me about uh, you know when you just mentioned uh, touching the rock and the difference between uh, having just a glimmer of light perception and none, uh, how much of a phase shift it is often for people who will use um, psychedelics, for instance, and mushrooms, and the difference between the sort of normal resolution at which we view the world and then the 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 one step removed uh, moving upwards where we have almost, uh, an enhanced HD perception of the world and, mm-hmm. and how, how significantly that changes your perception of everything. Uh, and you're seeing everything with new eyes, even though it's really just one click of the dial in terms of resolution. Um, uh-huh. so fascinating. Well, we have a lot to talk about. I want to let you get to your night. Uh, you've been very generous with your time and I always enjoy rapping with you.
1: It, it's a yeah, well, it's a pleasure to hear, Really fun. Um, on that point, by the way, there's a, um, um, you know, just to sort of pile up the reading list, there's um, Alan Watts, um, who's quite a kind of um, cheerful and wide-ranging and amusing um, kind of 20th-century philosopher, hallucinogen taker. Um, I think he described himself as a sort of spiritual entertainer. But he wrote <laughs> a... Um, Essay called The Joyous Cosmology, which examines in quite fascinating ways a little bit the, I guess, what you call the phenomenology of hallucination, where he talks about um, um, exactly that, like how it's even possible that perception can become much higher resolution and what it means that it is possible. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, because I. For instance, as anyone else, I think, considers like the resolution of my perception to be a function of my perceptual organs and brain. And it's, it's not an easily accessible idea that I could perceive at twice the resolution basically by paying more attention. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so he, anyway, he's quite magic on this subject. I and, mean, you know, he talks about hallucination as a, as a terrible term for the phenomenon because hallucination implies distortion and unreality whereas this is hyper-reality, as he describes it. Um,
0: and uh, anyway, so that's well worth a read, The Joyous Cosmology uh, by Alan Watts. I love it. Uh, Ed, where can, where can people find uh, more about you, what you're up to on the on the internets uh, or otherwise?
1: Well, um, in Hackney, <laughs> in the non-internets, I, I hang out. Um, so come to Hackney and then um, get into it. But yeah, I'm... Um, Memorize is uh, worth a look. We have a website and an app, and we're trying to make learning joyful. Um, if you're really into the um, questions about um, phenomenology and stuff about the quality of experience, there's a uh, there's a there's an ask which can be found online um, called "Is trilled smell possible?" Um, is what smell Im- possible? Trilled. In the sense of the musical note going <laughs> Right,
0: right, right. Is Trilled
1: smell so it's about, possible? Uh which is definitely like um I mean it's probably one of the worst, most incoherent pieces ever published in a philosophy journal, but it's quite good. And um and yeah, and I'm at Ted Cook on Twitter.
0: Um and that is Ed Cook with an E at the end for exceptional, is that right?
1: That's exactly anyway, right. Although, actually, on Twitter, I'm Ted Cook, because I'm twat
0: at taking Ed Cook. <laughs> <laughs> you're at Ted Cook, really, with a T in the at beginning? Ted Cook. Yeah. Timmy, <laughs> you're not following me. Jesus Christ. I know. Uh, I should be following you. I have all this goodness. Yeah. I, I, uh, I have... Um, I, I'm, I'm in a bit of uh, a social media malaise I have a, a bit of uh, digital fatigue so I've been taking a break uh-huh. uh, of sorts uh-huh. to the extent that I do uh, but uh, Ed yeah. I will let you get to your to your evening and your weekend uh, thanks so much for jumping on hey, and, this uh, has been a pleasure Tim really fun so we will we will grab some wine and get into some trouble next time you're in San Francisco
1: impeccable <laughs> <laughs> see you soon
0: alright thanks Ed Take bye it. bye This episode of the Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by 99designs. 99designs is the world's largest online marketplace of graphic designers. And I have used 99designs for years, including... ...to get cover concepts for The 4-Hour Body, which went on to become number one New York Times, number one Wall Street Journal. It was a huge hit. And here's how it works. And you can check everything out, including some of my competitions. You can see these book covers and so on at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. Whether you need a logo, a car wrap, a web design, an app, a thumbnail, a t-shirt, whatever... You go to 99designs.com, you describe your project, and then within a week or less, you have tons of designers around the world who compete for your business and submit different ideas and designs and drafts. You have an original design that you love or you pay nothing. It is fantastic. I have used it. I have mentioned it before, including in the 4-Hour week as a resource. Check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And if you use that link, you'll be able to see what I've done on the platform. You will also get $99 as an upgrade for free, which will get you more designs, more submissions. So check it out. And until next time, thank you for listening.